0: and this is DataCast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi everyone,
1: welcome to a new interview on DataCast. Today, I have the pleasure to chat with Pierre Paolo Ippolito. Pierre is a SaaS data scientist and a master a AI graduate from the University of Southampton. He has a strong interest in AI advancement and machine learning applications, such as finance and medicine. Outside of his work activity, he's also a writer for Towards Data Science and a freelancer. So, Pierre, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. From here, James.
1: You know, let's start our conversation discussing a little bit about your upbringing. I believe that you are Italian and you also did your post-secondary education in South Italy. Can you share briefly about your upbringing?
2: Sure. I was originally born in Naples uh, and that's where I lived around, I was 18, 19 years old and I did, uh, that's where I attended high school. I attended a scientific school in order to get started with my passion, which was like about mathematics, physics uh, and so on and then after I decided to start becoming a self-taught programmer uh, and that's where I did my start uh, with university as a, in electronic engineering. And so
1: for college you said you went to the University of Southampton to study electrical engineering. So how was this move from Italy to England for you and what were some of your favorite classes during your undergrad?
2: Yeah definitely was a quite challenging experience at the beginning because I'm the only one in my family that moved outside uh, Italy so it was just me on my own. But obviously it was, went really good, so I managed to complete my undergrad and I also do a master. Therefore, it was really definitely positive experience. That really challenged me from the point of view that also I during my high school experience, I never studied properly programming. I was self-taught. So I started, to, for example, by working for a non-profit organization in my city in Italy, from which I created the website and started working on like sponsoring events and things like that. From there on, uh, when I went to the university, I didn't have to challenge myself with uh, other people which had more programming experience and things like that. But uh, overall, uh, the undergrad degree was really good, uh, especially because in the UK, there is a lot of focus on uh, hands-on laboratories uh, for electronics, uh, and therefore that can give you lots of experience. And then, uh, obviously, there was lots of focus on like, C and C++ programming, uh, which are good for like, embedded systems design.
1: Actually, So you basically level up a lot of programming skills that you haven't learned. For your final undergrad project, you work on this very cool project that that I found. You basically developed a suite of games and then you machine learning to analyze brain waste data that can classify whether a child is affected or not by autism. Can you discuss this in more detail?
2: Sure. One of the problems is that children can develop disabilities at birth and identifying their problems at an early stage can lead to more consistent improvement later in their life. One of the reasons because of that is that our brain uh, can be shaped and changed uh, over time uh, making use of like, neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is defined how quickly or how fast our brain is able to adapt to changes and improve over time. And uh, when you are little, uh, there is a higher neuroplasticity activity in your brain. And therefore, uh, if you start uh, creating some habits or some behaviors when you're little, they're more likely that they develop in the longer term than if you try to develop it when you are older. And therefore, as part of this project, I decided to create this kind of suite of games in order to help children um, with disabilities to test them. Right? So for example, like uh, obviously, when you are a little, it's more difficult to identify if you have a disability or not, uh, because uh, you can tax uh, like you know, difficult questions or a question about logic or things like that might be more difficult in the early age stages of their life. And therefore, try to use games uh, can make more easy to distinguish between people which have some form of problems and some others which don't. There are different techniques that are used now, for example, like the Early Start Level Model and apply behavior Analysis, which are designed in order to help children uh, in, through the, this phase of uh, recognizing disabilities and uh, mitigating uh, any side effects in which it might have to their life. Both software and other, other solutions can be used in order to help them through this journey, basically. So, as part of this project, I made use of some data which was carried out from previous research study from the University of Pisa and the University of Southampton. Then, from on I created a different suite of games which were aimed to improve two different aspects uh, about gaming. So, which was imitation and job detection. These are two problems which people affected by disability might have, especially in early phases because they might, for example, imitation uh, are games which focus on uh, helping these children to see if they can uh, imitate some behavior from a game. So, for example, uh, you have an example of this this interactive game uh, and you have to imitate some steps in order to come up with your own solution, and instead some people might find it more difficult than others, and uh, therefore creating these kind of games can help you identify which are these kind of people. And joint attention is also another area of focus because People affected by disabilities, I think some four of them uh, might uh, find more difficult to collaborate with other people in order to solve a common task. Therefore, uh, as part of the studies, creep this pseudo uh, sort of games, uh, these games uh, were synchronized with a uh, wireless uh, EEG wearable device so that uh, it was possible to register the brainwaves activities of the people playing the games. And then uh, analyzing uh, all the data stored from these waves activities, it was possible to using machine learning to classify with about 96% accuracy if someone was affected not by autism. And uh, in order to do that, uh, different models have been developed. Uh, the most successful one was uh, Analystia, because obviously you're working with uh, time series data, and there is some form of also uh, long-term dependency in the data because of how people react to different stimulus in different times. So some are affected by disability might be slower, uh, are reactive so have stimulus, and other people which might not. And therefore, that's why LSTM turned out to be a really good valuable model for that but also using the, uh, CNNs was possible to create good models. And finally, at the end of this project, uh, everything has been assessed for different metrics, such as sensitivity, specificity, ROC curves, uh, and so on in order to make sure that they were no missing pieces of the puzzle, uh, and that everything was working in place.
1: Thanks for sharing the details on that one. I'm just curious, like, what was the motivation for you to work on these sort of issues with a particular interest?
2: I think because I always been interested also in medicine. And therefore uh, that was a an teaching ag- ag- topic and which I could try to bridge both my interests. And then obviously that's a quite a social topic and something that is good to, to try. I think it's a really important area which you will try to use machine learning because they, there, is a, there are lots of activities you can do. For example, uh, as an extension to this project, I also create some computer visions, tasks in order to identify like reaction to phases and things like that. So, and if you research about it, there are many other different techniques which uh, are tried nowadays. So it's an area of research which I think that uh, using pl- applied machine learning in this kind of field uh, can bring lots of benefits to the overall community and I think these are the main motivations behind it. Uh, especially also, I've known for example, I have also so, so one-man family Jersey, which uh, was affected with disabilities when I was little and uh, I know he was one of my cousins. So it's always good to to solve problems
1: you developed these sort of games that focus on imitation and attention. What were some of the challenges of creating these games? And understand that you use Unity to create these images and platforms yeah. for people to interact with. What are some of the challenges of building this simulation, uh, gathering enough data, things like that?
2: Yes, I think the main challenge was that uh, I tried different approaches. So some of the games were made in Unity, some of them were made in Python uh, using TK Inter. Or Pi game or these kind of platforms. Some of them were mainly just to be used on a, a touch screen device, a standard screen device, and others were well, also meant to be used in conjunction with hardware device. For example, uh, as part of the project, I also created an interactive whiteboard between uh, use of a projector uh, and a Wiimote uh, in order to read the infrared centers. And then uh, therefore, uh, this kind of whiteboard was meant to be placed not on the wall, uh, as traditionally, but uh, instead of like a fast service, like can be a table. So, they you can have two, three kids on a table, and there is this uh, touchscreen screen which is projected on the table, and, and they can play on the surface. And therefore, creating this kind of uh, environment was one of the key problems because uh, you couldn't just make use of uh, stand-up technologies which are now because you because they are designed for children, you want it to be as natural as possible to play. Therefore, they had a pen. They were playing on a table instead of having to play on a ceiling or a wall which you have to do with uh, projectors, uh, standard projectors. And then the other point was also making sure that uh, when I a games with uh, Unity, Python, or this kind of interfaces, uh, they had to be synchronized with the EEG readers, so that as long as you press the play button, uh, it activates the EEG readers, it sends the data, and everything is re- recorded in real time.
1: So the data must must be synchronized with the pre
2: Yes, because obviously you don't want to record some... E.g. waves before you were playing the game, or uh, you skip some part of the game, and uh, therefore things can get messed up, especially if you want to compare in real time uh, multiple time series from different children playing.
1: And I suppose that process, that data collection slash data pre processing step is like the most challenging part of this whole project.
2: Yes, and although that's good that, for example, they, we already had the data from a, a previous project carried out, like, as I said before, by my supervisor uh, and uh, researchers from the University of Peace and also another university in France. Mm-hmm. So we already had some form of data from this kind of processes, and then we created this course of infrastructure in order to make it possible to replicate uh, the experiments and so on for later analysis.
0: Perfect.
1: Yeah, thanks for... Putting on the focus on the challenge of collecting data and, and processing data is a huge bottleneck in any machining project in general. After finishing your bachelor degree, you spent another year at the University of Southampton to get a master in artificial intelligence. What were some of the most useful courses that you've taken during your master's?
2: Yeah, I think uh, deciding to take a master was really good in order for helping to focus on the research aspect of things. So during my undergrad at Bulldog all the different backgrounds in order to learn about machine learning and everything. And then after using, as part of my course, I continue to learn about more about computer vision, reinforcement learning, cooperation of finance, evolutionary algorithms. So focus on the different branches of machine learning and different type of applications which they can have.
1: I see. Is there any particular branch that stands out to you among these ones that you already mentioned?
2: IET, cooperation of finance, and evolutionary algorithms are something that really intrigues me. And at the same time, I think that Reinforcement learning is something that, which is gonna turn out to be more and more important in the future, in order to create more general uh, systems.
1: And besides academics, you also organized workshop for the AI society at the university. Which am I going over such involvement?
2: I was one of the first committee members of the AI society at the University of London. One of my friends had the idea to found this society because uh, before that my university were. No AI-related societies, before we decided to found it, uh, and then um, I was managing the, the advanced workshops of the societies. therefore I created different workshops such as Game in AI, uh, LSTMs, and then also during my final year of uni, I was also a Microsoft student partner. And therefore, as part of this experience, I also put in to create some workshops with the sponsorship for Microsoft. Uh, such mm-hmm. as one of the biggest one I made was AI in gaming, and uh, Microsoft gave us uh, support from like uh, Microsoft Azure, so we had uh, cloud resources assigned that uh, students could use for free, we create one day sort of hackathon in order to create bots to play different games and then create different tournaments within the class.
1: I see, that's very interesting, I think like, this is a great experience for students to get exposed to some of these enterprise technologies that normally they don't have access in uh, in the academic environment. For your master thesis called causal reasoning in machine learning, you created and deployed a suite of agent-based and compartmental models to simulate epidemic disease developments in different types of communities. What was the motivation and how was the thesis being carried
2: out? Nowadays machine learning models are able to learn from data by identifying patterns in large data sets. Although humans are able to perform the same form of task just by examining a few examples. And that's because of the inherent uh, human's ability to understand causal relationships and use inductive in- inference uh, in order to assimilate new information about some other world. Machine learning models are not able to do that because they just rely on refitious relationships instead of uh, looking also at the causality of things or uh, able to learn on top of other models, such as like transfer learning. This is something, transfer learning, which is used in order to try to bridge this gap if you want to create a really general machine learning models, you need some form to invite some form of causal reasoning in order to make true relations between different fields and things like that. Causality, naturally, in our daily life, every time we observe any type of interventional or retrospective questions, such as, what if I would take this action instead of this other one, what if I acted differently? Every time we ask these form of questions, uh, we require some form of causal reasoning in order to answer them especially if we think about the retrospective type of questions uh, which points to, to the past, so for example, uh, what if I would have taken a different undergrad degree? How would my life would have been And therefore, uh, In order to answer this sort of question, you have to create some form of like parallel universe and different alternatives which we can born And you can't probe machine learning models in order to answer this form of questions. And therefore, in order to work on that, you need to embed the causality. Casality, has been researched for many years in statistics, but not much in artificial intelligence. Therefore, uh, identifying connection within these two different ambits can therefore probably a good role in order to make breakthroughs and in creating the uh, truly artificial intelligence systems. At the same time, we think uh, is also really good because one of the main drawbacks of deep learning models is that they are considered to be not uh, really explainable. And uh, if you embed causal reasoning in a model, you can instead, uh, make models much more explainable and probe them with uh, asking them questions. And uh, they're also way less data dependent because if you create the causal reasoning, truly causal reasoning models, you don't rely much on data, but on the reasoning with the data and uh, thinking about how the data was created itself. I suppose
1: for the specific like use case of this project, you try to simulate epidemic disease, right? I, I suppose, that yes. what is the motivation for that and how, how do you actually incorporate causality in that process?
2: So one of the main motivations was that this coronavirus epidemic beginning of 2020. And at that point in time, um, many people that were using learning model in production, uh, they found problems because the market wasn't behaving in the usual way. And uh, the same happens for like how people were behaving in uh, environments, things like that. That shown a really big limitation of uh, machinery models that are in production now is that they were trained just on past data, but the, the situation which was going on uh, at the present in uh, February or March was not anything that has been seen before in uh, the last 100 years. And therefore these models were unprepared and they didn't know what precisely what to do in order to solve these kind of the problems which were tasked. Because therefore, uh, in uh, order to approach these kind of problems, uh, I decided to focus on causality, and especially on epidemiology, because another area was also that if you were a scientist, which were tasked in order to decide uh, the different governments how to behave in order to stop this pandemic, one of the main things we have to do is to decide what kind of policy to take and what kind of action to take and, uh, and try to predict. How the distant action will have an impact on both the economy and the populations uh, and the health care of uh, everyone. At that point in time, uh, because it was a new disease, you didn't have uh, any form of historical data. So, machine learning models are based on the historical data. So, if you wanted to fit a time series model to predict uh, the number of cases tomorrow or uh, how the number of cases will change if you do a certain research or not, it wasn't really possible because you had almost no data. of very little data, especially if you were around March or February in time. And uh, therefore, one of the approaches which is used in this kind of situation is to create uh, standard uh, traditional epidemiology models. These are are based on um, the fundamentals of modeling simulations, which is a branch of mathematics, uh, which is based around creating uh, models uh, for which you create, for example, there are two main approaches in epidemiology. One is compartmental modeling and the other one is agent-based modeling. In uh, compartmental modeling, uh, you use differential equations in order to describe uh, a system of people, and uh, these differential equations describe uh, each different compartment of, of models. So the most simple model, compartment uh, model, is the SIR model, which is divides the population in three different uh, compartments, which is susceptible, uh, infected, and recovered, and therefore people can move. While you create this mathematical situation, you see people moving from these different compartments, uh, and therefore you simulate a pandemic basically. If you want to create uh, models which are more reliable, you can then start from this different set of uh, compartments uh, and add more compartments. So, for example, instead of having uh, just three compartments which are successful infected recovered, uh, you can add a fourth compartment which is exposed, which which are all the people which uh, have contracted the virus but didn't show yet any symptoms and they can transmit it to other people. And then you can add other compartments such as uh, people that died instead of recovered from the virus. Uh, or uh, people which are vaccinated uh, and therefore uh, they are immune from the virus uh, and they can escape. And therefore, from that point of view, you can create a graph uh, which all the different compartments and how they are related to each other. And this is all this can be described mathematically by using differential equations. And then uh, once you have the different equation in place, you can run simulations, you can play with different parameters, uh, different constraints in order to simulate how, for example, using uh, some form of policy like wearing masks or uh, Social distancing, or better hygiene, can have different uh, impacts, and then uh, from there on, you can quantify how well or not your pandemic is going to evolve for your country in the specific. So this is uh, the first approach. But then uh, there is also agent-based modeling, which is a different approach. Agent-based model is closer to like any form of like reinforcement learning problem, because in reinforcement learning you have, for example, uh, an agent which moves in an environment. And in agent based Modeling, you create an agent, uh, which has different characteristics, which can be like uh, age, uh, city location, uh, routines which it follows, like sex, or any these other characteristics which are unique to an individual. And then using objective programming, you can create a class of these agents, and therefore you can instantiate uh, as many agents as you want, and therefore create a population of agents which can move uh, around different cities. And therefore, uh, using systems like Unity or uh, Python code that in order to create the graphics, uh, you can simulate these different agents which move around the city. And uh, therefore, uh, depending on their behavior and how free they have to move, you can see how the disease can spread around the community and uh, create and run many different simulations in order to store results and data. The good thing about this model is that it also works with traditional machine learning models, because you, we said that we didn't have any data, but now that we created this kind of models, we can generate and simulate uh, many different pandemics and uh, using different parameters. And for once you generate these different pandemics, uh, for example, you, you create different identity boards. For example, in, in one simulation, you decided to apply social distancing. In another simulation, you decided to apply people who have to wear masks. In other simulations, you decided to close all the shops. Therefore, you run all these different simulations. You store the data for all three of them, and then you compare the results, and you can also run uh, machine learning models on top of that, in order to predict uh, different things or infer parameters from the population, such as the R-value or any other statistics which are used right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Between these two, compartmental models and agent-based models, which one do you think is more practical or like feasible to, say, deploy in large scales of society?
2: It depends, because there are drawbacks for uh, each of these models. So Uh, Compartimental models, uh, because they're mathematical models, they are much, much faster to run compared to agent-based models. Because you just have a differential equation, you integrate it and solve it against time, and you can get results. Then uh, you can make it more complicated by, for example, integrating also against spatial dimensions or any other things if you create more complex models. But still, uh, they are usually much faster than agent-based models. Instead, agent-based models, they are usually more uh, interactive and visualized. It can be more explainable for set to be from because instead of just running the simulations in the time series results, you can also create dashboards to actually visualize how the different people are behaving in the environment, and therefore uh, how close they get to contact, and, uh, how the economy can vary. So you can make them really, really complicated if you want. For example, I think the UK government is probably following as when I saw the last I was following a more a compartmental approach, but at the same time, instead of uh, using five compartments like I use now uh, in now, they use about something like 22, to 24 compartments. So obviously, when you have a, a scientific committee which is working on it, they can then build on and try to compare different experiments and approaches to make it as realistic as possible. Because at the same time, the reason why we boot simulation is that uh, we create a synthetic environment uh, and we want to make it as realistic as possible to the real world.
1: Yeah, and Ms Mr. do you plan to carry on this research in the upcoming months? Because I suppose like there's a lot of potential ways that you can apply this for various reasons given, you know, the pandemic is still an ongoing issues, at least for the upcoming years. So
2: yeah, in my case, I decided to create a, a dashboard, which is available on AWS. So, this it is freely available online and anyone can play with it. The main objective of my research study was not to focus just on coronavirus, but to create a, a tool which was available and usable for any type of form of disease, which could spread also in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. There are, for example, if you go to the dashboard, you can see there are information about the real time number of cases that are in the world, subset by populations, countries, and these kind of things. There are also news API, which are using Python in order to get an understanding of uh, how the different situation varies between countries, and, the, and which is also performed sentiment analysis in order to understand what is the overall sentiment about the crisis uh, in each of different countries. And then there are the compartmental models and the agent-based models. On the dashboard, I created different scenarios, which are different possible simulations which you can run. For example, uh, using agent-based models, I created scenarios in which is applied track and trace, Track and trace is one of the main techniques which is, can be used in order to limit the spread of a disease. And in these simulations, I created different individuals which were, were free to move uh, within a virtual city. Every time one of them was getting infected, uh, they were just going into a communal quarantine area in order to avoid infecting other people. The only problem is that uh, while they were on the way to the quarantine area, they might have to infect other people or at the time, uh, there might be delays uh, because some of them uh, might not want to quarantine or didn't get tested, and therefore ended up spreading still the disease. And that was one possible scenario. Other scenarios, are, for example, like uh, how can this have an impact on the financial services of the country? And therefore, how many people might need financial support in order to survive the crisis if for example, you decide to shut down shops and things like that. And from that point on, you can put different scenarios, just like the role of having uh, communal hubs. For example, if you decide to apply a lockdown, this can definitely help uh, to avoid the spread of disease, but uh, at the same time, people still need to go to places like supermarkets. And uh, if somebody in a supermarket is infected and becomes a super spreader and can infect other people from different communities and things like that. Therefore, using this information, you can see what are the roles of these communal hubs can have on uh, if a disease spreads or not within a community.
1: Perfect, yeah. And I'll be sure to include the dashboard that you mentioned in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to play around. I think that's a very interesting project that you work on with a lot of tangible, not just scientific, but also like particle value for society.
2: With the dashboard, I was also possible to, I generate all the data from the simulations and then I compare it with the actual data from the last few months and actually see how they were different each other using machine learning and regression techniques. So it's also applicable to see how actually it was valuable uh, with the retrospection sort of to that, so that you can make better decisions for if there are new pandemics in <laughs> the years to come.
1: Perfect. So you also accumulated you know, working experience during your studies, including stints as a developer intern at Fidesa and then a freelance data scientist at Digital Dandelion. So what are some of the exciting projects that you were involved with at this basis?
2: Yes, at Fidesa, I was part of the derivatives teams, so I was working with the financial derivatives and my role was mainly about working with SQLs, designing different uh, queries in order to perform analysis. Therefore, I was mainly working on the server side of things. Then, uh, with Digital Dandelion, I worked for about uh, one year as a freelancing research data scientist uh, from them. Therefore, I had the opportunity to work with many different business clients in sectors such as finance, retail, and e commerce. In each business process, I work uh, with the different clients in order to plan their solutions and solve data problems. Uh, One of the most interesting projects I worked for uh, during my experience with TGL Dandelion was analyzing how stock prices can affect different company shares parameters, uh, and how can these be predicted. So, for example, we're given uh, some Level 2 data that we wanted to analyze how share prices within the company can change uh, depending on use from uh, outside the company, or if someone wants to, for example, uh, if in a company you have different shares from different owners, Someone said this to Celsius. How will this have an impact on the you know, overall performance of the company and things like that? And in order to work on that, therefore, I used different techniques such as feature selections, feature engineering, ensemble learning, and so on. And for that, was a, a really long processing, complicated task. But apart from that, I also worked on like different other projects such as budgeting optimizations for different sectors within a company. That's usually a role in which there is lots of waste of resources. So, if you are the owner of a company, it can be a difficult times to decide how to assign a budget to these different sectors within your company. So, for example, how much budget to give for the business unit, how much budget to assign for people advertising, how much budget to assign for developers, and things like that. And therefore, we we work and try to create a model using Bayesian brief networks, similar to. Assign a different budget for the different uh, sectors of a company. And lastly, another good project which I work on was um, learning to rank products. So, for example, in this case, uh, we will decide different algorithms in order to try to rank products within, a, for example, an e commerce website or things like
1: that. I see. Since August 2020, you have been a data scientist at SAS Institute, where you help the customers solve various data-driven challenges using cloud-based technology and DevOps processes. What have you enjoyed learning from working there thus far?
2: As part of my experience with uh, SAS, I'm currently working with the data science team in order to help our customers uh, solving data-driven challenges using cloud-based technologies and DevOps processes. So, as a company, we had a huge shift towards cloud-based infrastructures. And therefore, our, our servings uh, are now going to shift to cloud-based technologies such as Fire4, which is a platform designed in order to perform data analytics really easy, almost without any form of code. Therefore, uh, I'm mostly working with, as a customer-facing role in the data science team in order to talk with the different customers uh, and then decide what kind of best solution might be for them for making it easier for, for them to create and deploy models. We have a huge focus on making easy-to-deploy models, which is right now a quite challenging task, for example, using open source tools. We have a platform which is currently called via 4 and as part of this platform, it's a complete data science stack platform, which is cloud-based. You can perform tasks such as data processing, data visualization, machine learning, uh, model deployment and maintainment, all within the same interface. And for most of the tasks, you don't even have to use necessary code, even though you can, for example, code uh, using Python, R or SAS programming. It's completely open for everyone as a platform, so it doesn't necessarily have to work just with the enterprise solutions. That can be a really powerful tool because, for example, if you have to perform data preprocessing in Python or data visualization, you usually have some color plate code, which you have to use every time, or you have to work with different parameters and everything, you have to change with the code and run different scripts. Instead, with our solution, just can use a, some form of like drag and drop interface in order to quickly build reports, which will take you hours to do in Python. You can do them in minutes, within uh, our interface. That's mainly really what uh, we're working on and that's been the focus uh, in the last few years. So as, uh, SAS Institute has been uh, a leader in the analytics for more and we have a long-standing experience. So for example, as a company that we founded more than 40 years ago, and therefore was way before uh, the advent of machine learning and different technology, which are now And therefore, it There has been lots of focus, uh, obviously on analytics and creating values. So the main focus for us is uh, to cre- create business value for people, not creating just shiny models, which might never go into production.
1: Perfect. I'm just curious from this professional experience, what are some of the main differences that you learn from that compared to like your academic experience?
2: During my time at university, because we are many students, like obviously, we are not provided with many enterprise solutions. So, for example, I learned a lot about data science, machine learning, creating models, and digital data. But at the same time, we never work on properly how to deploy them and make them useful in the real life. And therefore, uh, I think that was one of the main things I worked on uh, within SAS was understanding uh, how can you do that on a large scale? Things like that. So if you work for really big companies, uh, like maybe SAS or uh, any other uh, giant technology companies, usually they are cloud-based and they work with uh, distributed systems. And that's something you don't really have the opportunity to work for or to study for while you're at university. For example, using cloud technologies, is something that's starting now, If you work for a university, you're always uh, working with some form of uh, like sandbox, which you can do some form of cloud activities in the cloud, but because it's a paid service, you can't really do too much. And instead, uh, if you work with an enterprise company, you can obviously get some much more hands-on experience of how you create a machine learning models, then you deploy it in the real world, or for example, how you get the data from database, large database and working terabytes of data instead of just working with uh, smaller data.
1: Data sets. Yeah, I see. So working with large scale system and massive amount of data. Okay, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Let's switch here and talk a bit about writing. So you have been a writer and editor for Towards Data Science since April 2019. What are some of the key benefits that writing and editing technical content has contributed to your professional development?
2: Yes, I decided to start writing for Towards Data Science initially just for fun and for recording different things I did. For example, the first article I ever wrote for data science was basically a draft of a research proposal for a PhD. So I was considering doing a PhD at a point in time uh, because I thought it would have been really useful for uh, making it easier for me to kickstart a career as a data scientist. But at the same time, uh, I decided to attend, re- after I got, uh, I created this proposal and I got an offer. And I decided to to reject the offer and uh, just continue with my master's degree because uh, I thought that although PhD would have been really useful and I still think that having PhD is, is useful at the same time, I thought uh, that maybe there could be other routes which I could have took in order to enhance my experience with data science uh, in my own time or uh, collaborating with company or to freelancing. Uh, so I thought that uh, writing uh, and um, editing content which is related to data science and machine learning uh, or AI in general, would have been a really useful opportunity for me also to meet new people uh, and help the community in developing uh, If you don't, it would be good to make data science uh, accessible also for people which uh, can't access universities or don't have any, or for example, they want to switch career later on in their lives. So if you write this sort of content, which is freely available online, everyone literally, also practitioners which are doing their their jobs. And that's that's one of the main motivations. So I thought instead of doing a PhD, try to focus on uh, documenting any learning I do, any side projects I do, make it available for everyone, and then uh, get in touch with the professionals through this sort of community, which is available in the world, in order to make new knowledge or understanding uh, which things are maybe useful or not to learn. From there on, uh, starting with uh, like freelancing and all these other opportunities which came after.
1: I see. It seems like writing opened up those inbound opportunities for you later on.
2: Yes, And did at the same time. Uh, starting from there, uh, I also joined the editorial team of Towards Data Science. I'm now an associate editor and I'm volunteering for this role and therefore I help different uh, editors of the publication in order to decide which article to publish or not and uh, checking for quality of the content and so on. So that can really help in order to also keep me also always updated with the latest in the field uh, and things like that. It's also a reward at the end because, um, for example, now I started writing mid 2018 and now I got like more than half a million uh, viewers and things like that over time. And therefore, it's always good to see that some things you decided to do in your spare time can be useful for other people as well and decided to like them, decided to read them.
1: Your blog posts have primarily focused on this various topic on machine learning, deep learning, data science and uh, model deployment. When you look back on the arc of your writing, what is the thread that ties everything together? And what threads that have you kept pulling?
2: I think I started from key concepts about machine learning, which I think were uh, the most important ones, such as for example, feature selection, extraction, uh, engineering. Well, uh, lots of people decided to focus uh, on the machine learning side of things because maybe the most glamorous part of uh, working as a machine learning engineer or data scientist. But at the same time, uh, in order to create a truly good model, uh, you have first to get good data because otherwise the machine learning models will not be able to learn properly from the data. And therefore, uh, I started off with uh, like these formal techniques such as free selection, extraction, uh, engineering. Uh, and uh, then I moved on different, more specialistic branches, such as computer vision, NLP, focusing on uh, making models available in real life. For example, uh, instead of uh, working on enterprise solutions, which might be like uh, using AWS, uh, uh, Microsoft Azure, or these kind of services, which you usually have to pay for them, I try to find solution on how to deploy machine learning models uh, for free using things like Tether 4.js uh, on NX, uh, or things like that, or uh, also creating dashboard with uh, Plotly, three minutes uh, of things like that because I that was the easiest way to make sure that uh, everyone could really enjoy and make use of the content I was providing for.
0: Perfect. Yeah and we will
1: talk about some of those projects with you later on. Besides writing about the topics that I just mentioned, you also branch out to a couple of other things, such as computational biology, solar cells, the internet of things, etc. What are some of the other interests that you plan to explore in the future?
2: Yeah, I started from this topic. I covered also this topic, uh, for example, like uh, Internet of Things and Social cells were topics which I covered for, for during uh, my undergrad studies at the Electronic Engineer. And therefore, I started from there because I really enjoy these kind of topics, even though I'm not now covering them much in my daily life jobs. In the future, I think I'm planning to explore more uh, about, for example, uh, fairness in AI, and uh, preventing bias in models. This is one topic I'm trying to cover. And then maybe create also models which are more related to applications in finance.
1: So let's move on and talk about some of those side projects that you work on. An interesting one that I found is an augmented reality personal business card created in HTML using the ARJS library. Uh, Yeah, what was the motivation for this project and, and how does it work?
2: The main feature for me was trying to create something innovative when, uh, for example, looking or a for of jobs uh, and attending conferences. For example, I think it was nice to handle a, a business card, but at the same time I thought that if I want to print something, I usually want a bigger meaning. Make it interactive uh, and use it some form of coding in order to gauge more the attention of people and make it always accessible. I think that would be really good. For example, like if I will hand over a business card during a conference. On the business card, there is my phone number, my contact address or things like that. These things don't necessarily are the same over time. So for example, if I change your address or if I change phone number, the contact will never be able to get in touch with me again even if I give him my business card. And therefore, make it interactive and add these AR components on it. You can just scan the card, and then get always uh, the updated information on how to reach me or things like that. It's not just uh, a static piece of paper, but it's dynamic uh, in its lifetime. You it can follow me even over time if I change things or move around.
1: I don't know much about the AR or JS library. You can tell the listeners a little bit about using the technology?
2: Basically, you have the standard business card, but on top of it, you have to create a marker. So a marker can be an image or a logo or anything like that, that you encode it uh, the, like you c- use a form of computer vision to assign it a, a QR code or a number, so that if you identify on the screen, when you go on my web page, it automatically recognizes. So there are different online tools which you can use that in order to create markers. And therefore using this marker, which in my case is just a picture of me, you just scan it over and then it activate right the there functionalities. Most of the code is really just uh, HTML code, uh, and then uh, it's just like something like three files overall. Then on top of that, um, you just make use of the AR.js library, which is a really good library, so it makes the jobs really easy for you. Once you detect the marker, you can just, all, everything I have to do was creating the different contact information around the card, do things like that and make them interactive for people they are just like really easy to create all the really augmented reality functionality on top of the card.
1: Okay, And so on the topic of using JavaScript libraries, you also had two other impressive projects that you use TensorFlow.js and ml5.js. Can you uh, dig deeper into them?
2: One of the main reasons for creating this kind of project uh, was that nowadays, it's really easy making use of right? libraries such as Pandas, Scikit-learn, Matplotlib uh, to create uh, visualization for exploring datasets and creating models. But at the same time, uh, these models can be really useful, and you can just sh- really share them if you make them available online. One of the ways to, you know, that you do that is, uh, for example, to make use of uh, TensorFlow.js if you are a TensorFlow user. Using TensorFlow.js, basically, you there are different approaches which you can take. You can either uh, make use of pre-trained models. Like for example, you create a model in Python, you save it as a pickle file or anything like that, and then uh, you load it in JavaScript and uh, use it in order to make prediction on the web, that's one way. Otherwise, you can code from scratch models or visualizations using JavaScript. That's also something that is provided within the TensorFlow.js uh, library. From there on, you just make it available uh, on demand. For example, on my website, I uh, have two of these different examples. One was using upvittering models, which is static data. So, for example, uh, if you have some data about, I don't know, for example, the iris set or something like that, and it's not valid over time, it's always the same. You create a predictive model, and you make it available online. That's the best solution for you. But at the same time, if you, for example, you want to create a machine learning model switch on your website, which predicts stock prices, for example, something like that, the data that you want to show on the website has to be always updated data. In this way, using a predatory model is not a solution because you will have to, for example, run a bash script on your laptop or something like that to. Train a model in Python, save it, and upload it to your GitHub, uh, and then uh, create a training, uh, making prediction. Instead of TensorFlow, using terms of OJS, you can do everything with the JavaScript code. For example, you fetch a data set using the Yahoo API or something like that. This data set is taken in real time. Your model is trained and made prediction in real time, and everything is free to use on the web. The only downside of using this approach is that if your data set is just getting bigger and bigger. Then you risk that while you wait for loading the pages, it might take instead of ten seconds, one minute, two minutes, and obviously that's another problem. And one way to solve that can be, for example, like a little more to instead of using uh, all the data available, you just use a window. So, for example, instead of saying, I want to train my model in the last ninety days and making prediction, instead of saying I want to train my model since uh, data from two thousand four and so on. There is also ML five that just is another alternative it's made uh, always by Google. But at the same time, it uses different things. So, for example, uh, that can be really good if, for example, you want to make use of large models which are pre trained by Google. So, for example, uh, using GalaxNet or page recognition models or anything like that, they are already available for you on the web. And then uh, using ML file.js, yes, you can just deploy them online uh, on the website to make we it really easy. This option is mainly used for like big pre trained models uh, which are available online. For example, if you're doing face recognition tasks or time series tasks, this kind of stuff.
1: I also enjoy looking through a couple of your data visualization projects using various tools such as Plotly, R Shiny, and Streamlit. was your experience working with these different tools?
2: Yes, I started first with Plotly because I was a Python user mainly. Plotly and Bokeh are two probably the best library for interactive visualization in Python right now. So making use of them is really cool. And it's all, everything open source. So, although BlockApp has some functionality for creating dashboards, but at least my experience I had some form of problems. If you want to deploy on, um, for example, website on a PC or laptops to view, they look really good. But in time, uh, if you try to visualize them on a phone or a tablet or these kind of things, uh, at times, the rescaling and uh, the interactivity might break down for some form of stuff. That's always something to pay into attention when. Really kind of models or dashboards i mean then i moved also to exploring rshiny because rshiny made the process of creating and developing dashboards uh, much easier to be honest uh, than it is right now with uh, probably all these kind of other tools in python but at the same time yes you have to have some knowledge of r programming uh, before it might be not for people are mainly using of python uh, or uh, other source and uh, ultimately Steam i think is probably the best solution right now that is available uh, that is free to use because it basically works with everything so it doesn't work with R itself but for example if you create a Steam dashboard which is already has its own template so you don't have to worry about it, about the background or anything like that, you then have just to add your plots or animation on top of that and you can make use of mapolib, plot3, bokeh.js, or anything like that and you can also embed the interactive javascript scripts on top of that so for example if you are a javascript user and you want to use some d3.js or reveal.js you can add embed using modifying the html and javascript behind it and therefore it can work with a bit of error which makes it really cool and uh, apart from that it also has functionality for adding tabs or layouts or things like this or, which can be useful if you want to create a really fast product which is shared within a, your developer's team. At the same time, you might look for other solutions if you, for example, you want to create uh, models, um, deploy models or visualizations in uh, for like enterprise solutions or things like that. So, same I think is really great if you, during the development phase, uh, especially if you're working with many people within across the project, but at the same time, uh, there is still has to see developers as a proper enterprise guide, for example, to add the most customization on uh, how the interface works, uh, things like that. Especially because it all works mainly in Python, so, you need to have a server and everything it is something you don't necessarily need. It. For example, if you are working with JavaScript or uh, HTML, when I created the project with uh, TensorFlow.js or uh, ML5.js, I could just deploy them on a Pages website for free without having to do nothing. He said, if you want to make a streamlit uh, web page uh, available uh, 20 hours a day on uh, your website, uh, you need to have a service i think working. So. You either pay for a server or you use a cloud provider. And it's something that uh, using uh, JavaScript libraries, you don't have to worry about this day.
0: You're currently
1: working on a chapter for a book called Applied Data Science in Tourism, which should be published early next year in Springer. Can you share the details about this book?
2: This book, I'm currently working on just a single chapter of the book. It's a book which is created mainly by the professor Roman Egger from Salzburg University of Applied Sciences. I've been contacted by him in order to write this chapter. Uh, I think it's really good because it's not just a focus on uh, duty-providing the book, but because it's a research-focused book and it's meant to be quite a big book, there are one or two authors working on uh, each single chapter. So there are about 20 chapters and one or two authors working on every single chapter. And there are authors from all around the world, so there, which are both uh, working in industries or are university researchers from universities like MIT or anything like that. So I think that what made this project really interesting for me was how varied uh, it was and uh, how that it meant to go into the different topics. So in my case, I'm working on uh, the chapter for hyperthermetic tuning. And therefore, I'm working on different optimization techniques for machine learning models and uh, how they works and how they can be applied in uh, the tourism industry.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that book in the upcoming months or so. Yeah. Finally, can you share your thoughts regarding the tech and data community in London, where you're currently based?
2: Yes, I think London is a really good place to be for like if you're interested in tech. So it has a really vibrant tech community. And it's possible to make connections to many channels, even now during coronavirus and many restrictions are in place. So, for example, there are obviously many Slack channels for people interested like in uh, model ops. Uh, Lots of people writing on Medium and things like that. Or there are also lots of events going on, virtually on Eventbrite or the different type of channels. London is a really a big hub for like tech companies. And that's also why there are many, many tech companies which are focused on finance or cloud or any form of industry you're interested in working with within tech.
1: Thanks for sharing that insights. Pierre, at this point of conversation, I want to move on in the final closing segment. In which I'm going to ask you three rapid questions and then you can, uh, you know, keep the answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data sense universe whose work you admire.
2: Two people, uh, I think, probably Andre Karpati, which is head of AI for um, Tesla. I think, obviously, they're doing lots of good researches right now and they have lots of focus, so like Python. Uh, computer visions and things like that. And um, the creating self-driving cars has been a, a long standing problem for people interested in AI. It has been going on for like more than from the seventies uh, and so on. All the work that we do right now, I think is really, really good. And, and that's something you should follow on definitely. Probably there is also Kasi Kazurov, which is the head of business intelligence at Google. Business intelligence is obviously something really, really, important, but at the same time, something that they don't necessarily teach you at university or Tiltada, so they may focus on teaching you the, the background of mathematics, data science, how can we apply the machine learning of Tiftada, how the models work. But once you graduate and you work for a company or an industry in general, what matters is that the models you create create a business value for your company or your customers. Therefore, business intelligence is definitely something you should learn more about it. Finally, probably another one, it can be Ian Brown, which is the head of data science at SAS, where I work right now. He has been in the industry for many, many years now and uh, work on different books and topics. Uh, so, that's definitely. Someone else to keep it account, especially on Twitter, which is with lots of active and hundreds of thousands of followers.
1: Number two, name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset.
2: I think one of the books I would definitely recommend is The Book of Why by Julia Perl. And that book focuses a lot on causality and how to create better models with generalizable. Because I think one of the main problems of the next few years to come is that nowadays machine learning models perform really well of narrow tasks, and that's great, but at the same time, if you really want to create truly intelligent systems, you need to have models which can work on cross-disciplinary. Yes, if you said that you are just focusing on just getting started with machine learning, I'll probably recommend uh, Pattern Recognition and Machine Learning by Christopher Bishop, which is another great book.
1: Yeah, that was a great recommendation. I read The Book of Why last year, you know, that's a big book. I think uh, there's a lot of great content and he goes really in depth into how talk about it, how it can be brought about from statistics to uh, AI development. Last question. Imagine that you could send out a single tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: I will suggest you to start a journey, which can be in data science on any other stream, just if you are really passionate about it and you want to give a contribution to the field. For example, uh, uh, right now, there are lots of people which are interested in data science because there is lots of hype around it, um, how AI can revolutionize different industries and things like that. But at the same time, uh, what do I think it should really be the focus of different people when choose career is go where their passion leads them. And uh, if you have passion, they can go anywhere. For example, uh, in the past, also, there have been uh, two different AI winters for people that are really interested in AI. They they might know that around the the 60s and the 80s, uh, the field of AI got almost stuck on uh, the limitation of computations you can do. And therefore, uh, they started off with symbolic AI, but they didn't manage to make any giant breakthrough. And then they stopped, they didn't know what to do. Then they went, once they created like GPUs or more complex models, architectural models for like big power computers they then managed to make breakthroughs again. But at the same time, that took years. And uh, many people uh, decided to focus on ideas. And people like, you said, Geoffrey Hinton, they decided to focus on niche areas, which were not mainstream uh, From there on, they decided to create neural networks and deploying models. And that completely revolutionized ideas in the industry nowadays, although many people will have bet against it in the past. So I think it's good to not go in always mainstream, but if you think an idea can have a value, even though it's not used nowadays, To go on for it and see if you can work it, make it work, and actually see if you can drive any values. And in this way, we can probably avoid any other future AI winter.
1: Thanks a lot, Pierre. I think that's a great way to wrap up the conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your background going from Italy to study in the UK, some of your interesting project working on machining for healthcare, doing causal reasoning, some of your past work experience from competition finance to currently working on cloud-based computing, the importance of writing, and then a variety of interesting projects related to using different JavaScript library, reading Dashboard, the book that I'm currently contributing into. And I'll be sure to include the links to some of these interesting projects and your writing in the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to take a look and uh, reach out if they're interested. in hope you great rest today. Thank
2: you very much, James. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you and uh, all the other listeners.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaley.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now